Morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 4, please, as we continue in our series, Peace Talks. I've got some good news today. With all my heart, I believe that God is wanting to write a brand new chapter in the history of Kerrville Church of Christ. I really believe that. He wants to see this church marked by diminishing worry, and he wants to see us grow in increasing wonder. And I just want to say this, if you've struggled with anxiety this week, I want to point you to a passage of scripture that is helping me to deal with mine. It's found in a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers in Philippi. We've been reading these words together every week for the last couple of weeks, and I want to invite you to do it again this morning. So sit up, put your shoulders back, fill your heart, I mean your uh, lungs with air and your heart with hope, and here we're going to read together as a family. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you've been having some trouble memorizing that, but I have been because I've got all these versions and songs I've sung about that verse in my head. And so I just keep confusing them all the time. But I do hope you memorize some version of that. I was talking with uh, Phil Robertson, the first lesson after we launched uh, Peace Talks. And he pulled me aside and said, you know, I, I love the idea of this Peace Talks peace talk series. I um, love the scripture that it's hinging on. But I have to confess, he said, when you asked us to memorize it, I became filled with anxiety. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit uh, to please put this passage of Scripture, this truth from God in our hearts uh, that nothing would ever take it away. Let's pray. Father, we mean this. We want peace in our lives. You said we didn't have to be anxious about anything. And yet we just want to be honest this morning. We, we come this morning with some anxiety. There's some things that we just can't seem to shake uh, that are nagging at us, that are bothering us. And, and um, we're asking, would you please teach us through the power of the Spirit how to do this? How can we truly rejoice in you always? Father, we're not the only church that's, that's desiring this peace, desiring this joy. Barnett Chapel is a part of our Christian community here, and we lift up their faith family. Please bless their preaching, bless their song service, their communion. Help them be a tremendously strong body of Christ uh, in this community with us. Please knit our hearts together. We so want the world to know that you sent your son and that it mattered. Help us do that in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. I would rather she hit me in the stomach with her fist rather than hit me in the heart with her disappointment. She said, I ask you not to tell anybody of our plans to move, and you agreed that you wouldn't, but you did. And she was right. I hadn't. Trisha was the wife of our youth minister. She and William were moving to another city, and she had told me so in confidence and asked me to keep it to myself for the next two weeks. And I didn't do it. See, I met with a group of ministers from seven different churches every Tuesday, and among us, we had a motto, ironically, which said, what is said in this room stays in this room. It wasn't original with us, but it was sacred among us. 
At least I thought. Because it each gave us a place to be ourselves and to share what was on our hearts and to know it wouldn't go any further. Well, losing William and Tricia was really troubling me. They'd only been there a little over a year, and I didn't know how it was going to affect our church when they heard the news. I was struggling with some serious anxiety and how it would impact our church when they heard that they were leaving. I shared with the guys, I need your prayers, and I told them why. And yes, before the two weeks was up that I promised Tricia that I'd keep it a secret. Again, I said ironic, right? That it was in a place where what was said in that room stayed in that room. Because like me, one of the ministers there later shared the news of that, of William and Trisha's leaving with a member of their church who drove William and Trisha's bus that their child rode on. And he simply said to her one morning, he said, I heard you were moving. Man, we're going to miss you. When Trisha asked where she had where he'd heard that, he said, my minister told me. And she put two and two together and she came to see me. Trisha asked me that morning of the incident that I'm telling you about if I had shared their moving plans with this particular minister. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry I did. And that's when she shared her disappointment that I would not kept my promise. I said, I'm really, really sorry. And I tried to explain the circumstances in which I had shared it. And then I quickly added, um, but that doesn't make it right that I shared what you asked me not to. I said, would you forgive me? She said, I already have. But she said, I'm still very disappointed, and I don't know that I can trust you with a secret, for a while at least. I was devastated, and I wondered if our relationship would ever be the same. They left two weeks later, and I have a feeling it was just as raw with her as it was with me. Now, interestingly enough, 13 years later, last month, we had finger foods and some refreshment over at um, the minister there at Gateway's home. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. I'll tell you this now, very few times in my life have I felt guilt like I did at that moment. There's a guilt that sits in the stomach like a concrete block, and I felt like I had eaten three. There's a guilt that causes somebody to feel bad for doing something bad, but then there's a guilt that swamps you and you feel guilty just for being alive. It's a guilt that causes you to look in the mirror and say, who are you? Who is this liar? Who is this deceitful hypocrite? Where did you come from? It's a guilt that descends quickly into shame. And I wonder, have any of you felt that? Most guilt says, I did bad. Shame says, I am bad. Now, I won't say breaking Trisha's confidence is the worst thing that i ever done in my life. I wish I could, but I can't. But I will say this, it was the first time in a long, long time that I felt that level of destructive guilt in my life. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know where to place it. Now, maybe there's someone on the planet that's never experienced that, but I haven't met them, and I don't think they're in this room. Your guilt may have caused you to feel the shame that I felt because you abused alcohol. It may be because of a weekend of inappropriate sex. Your guilt may have come because you stole something that wasn't yours. You lost your temper. You lost control in an embarrassing way, in an ugly way. Maybe your guilt, however, is not just for a moment. It's been for a season. You feel like you're a failure as a parent. Maybe you squandered your youth. And then maybe you just inherited your guilt. Maybe you were abused. Maybe your parents passed on to you some sense of you deserve that abuse that you received. And I just want to say on behalf of God, you didn't. But you still don't know what to do with it. Max Lucado suggests that guilt is a seed from which grows the weed of anxiety. And I just want to say personally, I think he's dead on. 
Guild creates anxiety. Now, this may be a new thought for you, but most likely it's not a new experience. If you pick up books on anxiety at the bookstore, you're going to read discussions of overcrowded calendars that are full of hard and harsh demands. You know what? That can be a struggle. I've dealt with that kind of anxiousness, but rarely discussed is the anxiety that comes from guilt and comes from shame. As a matter of fact, I think it can be said that the first documented case of anxiety in the history of the world involves some guilt. You remember the infamous moment? It happened in the garden. The people involved were the first man and the first woman. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, the scripture says, That evening Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden, and they hid themselves among the trees. That's what anxious people do. We run and we hide. But you know what's strange? You've got to ask, what's happened to the first couple? I mean, this has got to be the first appearance of anything that interrupts this tranquility we know existed in the garden. There had been nothing but peace. There had been nothing but contentment. And the scripture says there was no fear, no trepidation. They hadn't ever hidden anything from God. It's because they never had anything to hide. So why now? Genesis 2 and verse 25 says that it was so safe to be in the garden that Adam and Eve could be naked and feel no shame there. Wow. That's pretty safe. Again, so why now? Well, you know the story. Enter the serpent. Enter the temptation. Enter the conscience that says, I wouldn't do that. And then enter the decision that says, mm, but I'm going to. Guilt came next. And then anxiety soon followed. Guilt drove the truck and anxiety rode in the back. We know what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. They covered up. They hid. That's what anxious people do. And as ludicrous as we see their efforts, we do the same. We try to figure out how in the world we can cover up and overcome this guilt that we're swamped with. Here's a couple of ways that I think we attempt to do so. Number one, we deny it. We pretend that we never did anything bad. We concoct some bogus plan that we never really did anything wrong. One lie leads to another, and then a second lie leads to a third to cover the first. And before we know it, the first question we're asking about it is, what did I say about it last? If we don't deny it, we minimize it. We didn't sin. We just lost our way for a moment. Got caught up with the moment. We, we just did what everybody else is doing. We just experienced a lapse of judgment. The third thing we often do is denounce the existence of the wrong. This one's classic. There's no wrong here because there's no standard for right. There's no ultimate truth because that would mean that there's a God who established that ultimate truth. And everybody knows there's no God. It's all about evolution, Right? There's no right and wrong because there's no God. That is until you offend me or hurt one of me, mine or me. And then all of a sudden, we're going to talk about what's right and what's wrong. Sometimes we just bury it. We bury our guilt under a mountain of work. We get busy and stay busy because the less time we have to spend with the one that we can't stand most, ourselves, is easiest. Number five, we beat ourselves up. We cut ourselves we curse ourselves. Ancient priests used to flog themselves with whips. We do that with rules. More prayer. More Bible study. More, more denying yourself pleasures. Because we've got to pay some penance for this guilt. Next we numb it, some of us. With a bottle of Grey Goose. With an hour of pornography. With a joint of marijuana. With a rendezvous at a hotel. Because guilt disappears during happy hour, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Until happy hour is over. Another thing we do with our guilt is we avoid the mention of it. Some topics are just off limits in our lives. We keep things on the surface and we pray Freddy Krueger doesn't come back, that nobody sees his ugly face again. Still yet another is this. We re redirect our guilt. 
We lash out at our mates, we lash out at our kids, we lash out at our employees because of what we feel guilty of. We so hate ourselves that we're not going to let anybody close because if they get too close, they'll find out who we really are and what we really have done. Two more. Sometimes we just offset it. <laughs> we may have failed, but, but I'm going to be the, the perfect wife. We're going to have the perfect family. I'm going to have the perfect body and the perfect, I'm going to be the perfect employee or volunteer. Everything's got to be perfect. Hair, voice, clothing, reputation. And if none of that works, the last is the worst and the rest of it. We embody it. We didn't just screw up. We are a screw up. We didn't just make a mess. We're a perpetual mess. We didn't just do something bad. We are bad. And then we make it our destiny to be bad all the time because then you don't have to worry about the pressure of being good at anything because you're bad to the bone. Adam and Eve hid behind their fig leaves. What are you hiding behind? We all do. I did when I didn't keep my mouth shut as Trisha had asked me. I'm telling you the truth. For a while, I couldn't talk to anybody. Didn't tell Gail. Didn't speak to my elders, not my best friend and co-worker, John Duncan. I hid it. And then began to work my way through most of the other nine reactions to being guilty. All the while asking myself, does this disqualify me from being a minister? I mean, come on, what right does a man have to speak to others about the promises of God when he can't keep a promise? I didn't know what to do. And if you're wondering what kind of person... Does unresolved guilt create? I can tell you this personally. It creates an anxious one, a troubled one, a sleepless one. And living this way was absolutely exhausting. And it just so happened, I love God's timing. I just finished two books at the time on grace, one by Philip Yance and the other by Max Lucado for a class that I was getting ready to teach. And they both helped me realize that I had to address the guilt in order to get rid of the anxiety. That I had to go upstream to its source. And you know what I found out? When you do, there really is a peace that passes all understanding. It finds us when we truly find God's very real and very healing grace. So I took a chance on further damaging my integrity. I grabbed my good friend John and I told him what had happened. When I was through, he did three things. First of all, he spoke grace to me. He began by reiterating his love and respect for me, and then he felt privileged to be able to hear my confession. Then he read God's word over me, the words that Ryland read a few moments ago. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he's lavished. I love that. Honest. John said, I know you already have asked God to forgive you, so I'm going to pray that you really receive his forgiveness, John. And so he did. He spoke grace over me, he prayed grace over me, and then he embraced me. A hug that only a fellow ragamuffin can give to another fellow ragamuffin who's finding grace from his dad. And the wound began to heal. It took a while, but it began to heal there in his office. I really want to say, if you haven't heard me say it in a while, there really is a grace that's greater than our sin. And you want in on that. I learned that from the Apostle Paul. He got it from God himself. Last week we talked about the Apostle Paul building his entire teaching around two huge truths in his life. Every letter, every sermon seems to come back to these two truths. We call them part of his belief system. I illustrated that last week with my own personal bow. This is not my own personal bow. Actually, I own it, but, it, but it's in my, um, my office and it stays there. It's one of the more ancient bows. It comes from the Mescalero Apache Indians and it's authentic. 
which actually was used. It can fire arrows, but it doesn't. It sits on my shelf. But it's always a reminder to me that this bow system takes little spheres and flings them at a target in the same way that my belief system in my heart, and each one of you has one of these, each belief system of ours, those convictions, those truths that are non-negotiable, those things fling words, and they fling actions out towards your marriage, and your relationships, your friendships, and your places of employment. And so it's hugely important that you've got a great belief system, because that belief system brings about behaviors in your life. And so if you don't like your behaviors lately, go back and look at your belief system. That's what Paul wants to say is the key to living a life full of joy and peace. And he speaks from experience. Two huge foundational truths in Paul's belief system are this. Two major parts of his bow system are this. Number one, the top one is God's in control. The bottom one is this, that God's grace erases all guilt. Those are the two major limbs in his life, in his personal bow system, that he leaned on, that he found energy from, that he could throw his words and his actions at towards all circumstances and situations in his life. And we're going to look at the second one this morning, and then we'll be done. You know the story of Paul. No one had more reason to feel guilt than this guy. <laughs> he had blood on his hands because he didn't just set out to prove Christians wrong. No, he set out to eliminate them. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, the Bible says, Paul was like a wild man, going everywhere to devastate the believers, even entering private homes, and driving out men and women alike, and jailing them. Listen to me, Paul was the original Osama bin Laden. He was a Christian terrorist. And he not only persecuted Christians, he was a legalist. And the more you get to know what that word means, especially in biblical terms, when you read about the Pharisees and those that, that lived under that type of thinking, not good. May have been worse than being a terrorist in some ways. Because it can sound so good when that's attached to God. Paul was a legalist because he was living under an old covenant that wasn't in existence anymore because of this new Savior that had come into the world, Jesus Christ. But he chose a salvation that was more like a legal transaction. That if you wanted God to do something for you, you had to do something for him. It was contractual. And Paul articulated this idea of this self-salvation in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. If others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, <laughs> Paul says, I've got even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I'm telling you the truth, I obeyed the law without fault. Wow, that's some pedigree. So not only does he have blood on his hands, Paul has religious diplomas on his wall. He considered himself in the Religion Hall of Fame. Just read Paul's letter to the Philippians. But then came the day. On the road to Damascus, he met pure holiness face to face. He met pure love wrapped in holiness face to face in the resurrected body of Christ. And I'm telling you, it changed his belief system. It changed him from the inside out forever. He lost sight of his accomplishments 
He lost sight of his achievements. He lost sight of his reputation. He couldn't see any reason to brag about what he had done in his religion anymore. And for the rest of his life, the guy almost couldn't help himself but talk about this Jesus and what he had done rather than Paul and what he was doing. Grace never had a more passionate champion than the Apostle Paul. You know why? Because grace completely erased all of his guilt. And man, did he have some. I can't imagine the humility it took for Saul to go to a man by the name of Ananias, who no doubt had to be on his hit list as he made his way to Damascus. And rather than going to arrest Ananias, he humbles himself and says, Ananias, will you baptize me? Will you bury my old life so that I can start this new one? Because I never want to look back. Listen to what he wrote about that were the results of that decision in Philippians 3.7. I once thought these things, my accomplishments under the law, I once thought they were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done in my life. Wow. In exchange for a, a self-atonement-based, performance-based religion, he exchanged it for a Savior-based, Jesus-performance-based religion. And it changed everything. Verse 9 says, I no longer count then my own righteousness through obeying the law. No, rather I become righteous one way, through faith in my Christ. Now this all comes, you know this by now, in the, in the letter to the church at Philippi. It's been called the epistle of joy or the epistle of peace. That's why we label this peace talks because it really is a study of the entire book of Philippians. But it focuses on this particular section that talks about this peace that passes all understanding that enables me to have decreasing worry in my life and increasing wonder and joy. Where does that come from? In an exchange of my guilt for his grace. That's where it comes from. That's all Paul can tell you. <laughs> and it changes entire life from top to bottom. And so maybe, just maybe, there's a parent of a teen here, of a 17-year-old who's saying, how do you help a guilt-ridden 17-year-old, here's what Paul would say. You tell that 17-year-old he needs to give that guilt to Jesus who will gladly take it because unforgiven guilt will turn you into a miserable, restless, relentless, unforgiving, bitter, negative person every time. What would you say to a 70-year-old who's laden with guilt, who's just full of anxiety all the time? Paul would say this, take your guilt to Christ Please let his grace well up within you from the inside out because it changes everything and it calms the anxious soul. Now, all of you in this room who've been a Christian for any length of time know that grace is a word God chooses that describes the undeserved favor of our Father. He knows we can't live with our own guilt and so he said, let me let you put it on someone who can deal with it, his son Jesus Christ. And where that took place, the whole world knows, was on a cross. The whole world knows that. It was there that this transaction supposedly, the world would say, took place between our sin and his righteousness. And he was bearing our sin so that we could have his righteousness, and that trade took place there. Now, the world seems to know that, but the world doesn't accept that. And not all the world trusts in that, and not all the world bases their belief system on that. The popular gospel is still the self-atonement plan. I will give more, and I'll repent more, and I'll deny myself pleasure more, and then God will count me worthy. And the cross declares that's a crock of nonsense. He took our sins as severe as they were, and he received the wrath of God we deserved, and he offers us his righteousness as a trade of all trades. And if we trust him, 
that he's a capable savior of all of that, life comes. That's why he writes to a prodigy of his by the name of Titus, and he says, oh, Titus, God's readiness to give and forgive is public now. It's gone public. Salvation is available to everybody. Please tell them this. Build up their courage with this. Pause button. Did you notice where courage comes from? It comes from grace. Anxiety is a result of guilt. Courage, though, is a result of grace. Grace creates confidence, and I've experienced it myself in this moment that I'm taking you back to that happened 13 years ago. That the more and more that I was able to take this guilt and give it to God, and I mean just give it to Him, let Him have that, and receive His grace into my life, confidence began to grow that I really could still be a minister, that I could still be a good father, and I could still be a good husband. Maybe I'm not such a mess after all, but only for one thing, His grace. When Jesus said it's finished at the cross, I believe Him. I believe He meant it. I believe that my, my sin debt was being paid there, as Andy said earlier, and it was the greatest discovery in the world. And what separates the Christian faith from any philosophy or dogma or religion the world over is simply this. God saves sinners, not saints. He saves sinners, not saints. Now, all other religions teach that you've got to become a saint if you want God to love you and to save you, not Christianity. Christianity says you've got, you've got to understand right up front, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who realize they are bankrupt and have nothing to bring to the table when we're talking about being in his presence forever. Maybe you've always wondered why you're troubled in your soul, why you have these sudden unexplainable outbursts of anger, why you're forever ill at ease, forever fearful of something. And Paul would say, how can you be at peace when you haven't settled yet that if you were to die today, would you be in the presence of God? Because if you're relying upon your own efforts and your own merit, there's no way to ever be at peace. But if you're relying upon Christ and all that He is, validated by the resurrection, you can be at peace in any circumstance. Now, don't take my word on that. That's why we've been reciting Philippians 4, 4 through 7 every single week. Maybe someone's tried to convince you that salvation is up to you. Well, I'm here this morning to stand in this pulpit with bold defiance and say that's a lie. You need a savior to save you. You need a life giver, not a life coach. And Jesus is qualified to do both. I'm going to close with this illustration. Here's where the circus comes in, kids. Henry Nouwen was a great Catholic theologian, spent part of his early life traveling with the circus. He came to be close friends with the acrobats, particularly those who were on the flying trapeze. And he asked them once, what's the secret of flying from one trapeze to the other? And this particular trapeze artist said, here's the secret. It's that the flyer does nothing, and the catcher does everything. He said, when I fly, I simply have to stretch out my arms and wait for the catcher to catch me, and then pull me to safely over the apron. He said, now the worst thing that can happen is for the flyer to try and be the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch the catcher. The catcher's job is to catch me. If I catch him, I might break his wrist, or he might break mine. That would be the end of both of us. He said, no, a flyer flies and a catcher catches. And so the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that the catcher will be there for him. What a great picture of grace. In this great trapeze act of salvation that we're talking about, we are the flyers. We're the flyers. He's the catcher. It's just our job to put our arms out and say, catch me, God. Not because I'm good, but because you're good and you're capable of catching me. There's a reason that the windshield is much larger than the rearview mirror of your car. It's because the most important stuff is out in front of you, church. It's not what's behind you. 
Yeah, some, but, but the most important, the biggest part of what you see when you're driving is the windshield, through the windshield. And I'm going to invite you to just do that with this pass that maybe you brought in here this morning that you just keep dragging around with you all the time. Would today be the day you just truly let His grace and forgiveness just cover that once and for all and be done with it? You're free from that. He's lavishly placed His grace upon you if you'll just receive it. And if you will, Paul says, you can be anxious for nothing. It's 13 years later, a couple of weeks back, and John Duncan, the minister there at Gateway, calls me and says, Hey, Amy and I want to have you and Gil over for some, uh, some refreshments and some finger food. I said, Great. And he said, Oh, by the way, guess who's staying with us? William and Tricia. And he said, Great. He said, I thought we could get together and talk about old times. <laughs> I thought, Great. And I am telling you, the guilt just swamped me again. And so I had to go back to the cross. And lay it down and say, God, I know you forgive me, but I don't know about William and Tricia. I haven't seen them really in 13 years. So we walked in the doors, and it didn't take that long to know where we stood. You could see it in their eyes. You could feel it in their embrace. Grace. And what a great night. Although we went there with a little anxiety in our hearts, all right? After that embrace, and after seeing in their eyes, we just knew. This was a couple who didn't just see grace as a concept. They lived by it and in turn allowed us to live with it. Grace isn't just a concept. It is the only way to live. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Again, our hearts, the word thank you is not enough. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. You are a great God. Only you could come up with this plan. Because we have failed and failed and we continue to fail. And yet there's your grace and your mercy and your family who are not just grace receivers, but they're grace givers. May we all be Trishas and Williams. May we all learn to receive that grace and give that grace, even when it's not deserved. Father, help this to be a place of grace for this entire community to come and, and to, to bring themselves just as they are. And we, we will pledge to love them right where they are, but love them too much to leave them there. And keep pointing them to Christ and pointing them to grace and pointing them to the fact that you've, you've lavished love and, and mercy on them and, and that the Spirit's in them. And they, come on, they can, they can be better, do better because of what you are doing in their lives. We're going to celebrate that together as a family, God. But if you brought someone here today who, who wants in on that, <laughs> who says that's a deal that's too good to be true, would you lead them up here, Father, so that we could put that old life of theirs to death in baptism? See them raised to walk in a newness of life. And to leave here knowing they are so loved. And everything is in front of them. And the other stuff's behind them. Because you said so. In Jesus' name we praise you and everyone said. Let's stand and praise him, church.